if, if uh, everyone charges all these fees to get there, then at the end your profit's so small that if there's a little slip up somewhere, then there's no, there's no profit to be made. And the person putting the deal together gets, you know, stuck holding the bag and not making any money. Um, so I like the idea of having my Welcome to building wealth through real estate. If you invest or desire to invest in real estate, then this show is exactly what you need. And here's why. We all know that the number one thing that you should be doing as an investor is networking. Your network equals your net worth. But how can you use this to your advantage? Well, firstly, take notes. Listen to what the guests have to say. If you're a new investor, you can learn from the mistakes that they've made, the experiences that they've gone through, and learn how they think. If you're an experienced investor, you could see strategies that they may be implementing that you haven't thought of using yourself. Now, secondly, you may have questions. And if you do, great. Put them in the comment section down below. And this way, we can be sure to get those questions answered for you. And thirdly, there's a ton of information out there, but I found that most of it is relevant to the US and it's hard to try and take out and extract and see what's relevant to your area. So all of the guests that I'll be interviewing are Canadian investors. So if you invest in Canada, if you're interested in investing in Canada, then this show is exactly what you need. Joining us today is Mr. Nick Pentelichuk. Nick, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and where your real estate business is currently at? Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, nice meeting you, and you pronounced my last name perfectly. So my name is Nick Pentelichuk. Uh, I own a business called Clean Cut Real Estate, and we have um, an in-house team of uh, realtors. I am a realtor. Um, we also have a contracting company uh, that does the renovations for fix and flips or uh, suited properties and rental properties. Uh, we have an interior designer in-house, and we also have some money partners that work with us. So we are um, constantly doing deals in and around the Edmonton area and um, have been doing it for 11 years. Uh, we've flipped over 60 properties in that time. And, um, you know, we're doing our own uh, projects of finding a property, renovating it, uh, renting it out or selling it. Um, but... Uh, we can either offer to work with you um, in buying the, the finished product that we put out, or we're happy to, to fill in in the other roles of um, acting as, as your realtor or your uh, contractor or interior designer, um, you know, wholesaling. Uh, we can put our money into your project. So we're looking for more people to work with and um, continue to, to grow our business. Um, but uh, we take pride that we're not just acting as realtors or contractors or whatever. We, we have all the pieces to put a full deal together from start to finish. And that's kind of where the clean cut comes from. That start to finish, it's a pretty clean cut deal um, to get you to that, to that final product. Could we backtrack a little and just um, see how you got started and your, your journey to this point? Yeah, so... Um, a little bit about me is that I grew up on a, a potato farm and my grandfather started that farm. My dad took it over and I uh, worked like I learned my work ethic from working on the farm and uh, they've always believed in, in investing in land and working hard. And, uh, you know, through that, I, I learned different skills of, you know, how to use different uh, pieces of 
equipment or machinery and I really got into landscaping so I uh, ended up going to Nate for Landscape Architecture which is like the design of, of landscaping and then uh, started a landscape company from there uh, you know I bought my first home at uh, when I was 20 and rented out the the rooms to others so kind of did a, a house hack situation and added value to the property by landscaping it uh, renewing the the basement and then I had uh, my friends renting out the the rooms of the house and then um, from there when I when I sold it there's a profit to be made and um, you know I thought you know kind of broke into the world of real estate investing so kind of rinse and repeat did that a few times and uh, then got into full-time uh, renovating uh, worked for a guy who was flipping houses then started a renovation company um, then started flipping homes full-time and then um, you know it just kind of kept progressing to the point that I ended up getting my real estate license and uh, now we kind of have this this team in-house where um, yeah, we're wholesaling deals we're um, buying deals off MLS and then sweeting them, putting in legal suites into the house and keeping them as rentals or we're fixing them and, and flipping them and um, yeah just working in in the real estate space full-time now. That just shows you there's multiple ways about getting getting to uh, investing into real estate you know some people go wholesaling and then jump into either fix, or fix and flipping or or rental properties. I mean your journey I think is quite unique from what I've heard so far, you know, landscaping, house hacking, fix and flipping, getting your license and just taking it from there. Currently, like on a personal level, um, what strategy or strategies are you pursuing? Um, so we pursue a lot of different strategies and there's, um, it's hard to say like a lot of, of investors, when I talk about real estate investing, they say like, what is the biggest money maker? What's the best? Uh, strategy and I think it's dangerous uh, talking that way because I think uh, through everything there's pros and cons so instead of saying this is the best or this is the worst um, I think that there are pros and cons to each and so I try to take advantage of the pros um, of each scenario and um, benefit from those uh, where I can and not just focus on on one strategy but my biggest I guess my biggest strategy is mitigating my risk and hedging my bet so um, trying not to just look at the upside potential of a property or like the, the big amount of money that could come out of a property um, I actually try and look at it from the other way of how am I not gonna lose money in this property uh, how am I going to make sure that um, the investors or the people that I'm working with aren't losing money and how are we going to make this deal a success so it's kind of a combination of um, you know wholesaling techniques or burr techniques uh, long-term hold techniques and fix and flip techniques and um, one that we focus on right now seems to be uh, buying an undervalued property trying to find an undervalued property that we can um, add a secondary suite to we can add value to and add a secondary suite to and then raise the value uh, of it through that process and then um, rent it out have a good cash flowing product but also put it up for sale so then if an investor wants to come by and buy a turnkey property um, which is kind of the 
the quickest and easiest and smoothest way to get into real estate investing is just buying a turnkey cash flowing rental property. Um, and if you don't want to go through the headache or the the risk of getting it to that point, you can just buy a finished turnkey property for us uh, from us. But as we've seen in the past couple months, like interest rates have gone up, house prices have gone up, contracting rates have gone up, and now there might not be um, that profit that there once w was in flipping properties. So we've uh, mitigated our risk by if when we do this renovation, if we can't sell it on the back end for what we were hoping for, then at least we have um, a really good rental property that we can sit on for a while until we um, until we you know find the right buyer who um, we can take our, our money out of that renovation and, and move on to the next project. So a lot of legally suited homes. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and to touch on what you first spoke about, I completely agree. I, I don't think that there's a good strategy versus a bad strategy. Um, I also just think it's uh, what your personal goals are, you know, your, your, your current situation, a bit of what the market's like. Um, so currently, you you know, you're open to all different strategies, but this is this is the one that you've been gravitating to the most right now, at least, is buying uh, distressed properties, fixing them up, turning them into uh, rental properties, and then either selling them or, if you're not able to at the moment, keeping them and renting them out. Well, that just seems to be the most um, uh, scalable, I guess, or consistent project that we can do. Um, but it de really depends on the market too. Like I find if it's a seller's market, then, uh, you know, a better strategy or something that we pursue more would be wholesaling. Cause if we can get something under contract, um, then it's less risk and easier just to pass on, um, a home or a contract for, for a profit or a fix and flip. Um, when times are, are good and everyone's buying real estate, um, it's like anyone can make money fixing and flipping and everyone looks like a genius. And then when it, the market flips like it has now um, and it's a buyer's market, uh, it's pretty hard to look like a genius or a good flipper uh, in that market. And that's where we focus more on the long-term hold, um, the suited properties and trying to figure out how to, you know, hold on to a property while um, creating wealth through the, the rental aspect so makes sense that makes a lot of sense um what process do you um go about determining if a property will cash flow and if it's a good buy yeah so for um figuring out if a, if a home's a good a good buy i think you have to have a good understanding of um what you're looking for first and like what you're going to be doing to um a property uh, we actually had a, a property under contract just this week that was um, sixty thousand dollars below its listed price or what it was, you know, the market was kind of saying it was going to be worth or what comparables were showing. Um, but we actually couldn't figure out how to add enough value to this property to turn a profit. So even though it was an undervalued home um, by numbers or just looking at numbers. Uh, we didn't have that end game plan of showing what we can do with that. And I think that is um, a mistake that a lot of new investors see is they just try and find, oh, this this property is a good deal. It's a good purchase. But if they don't have the vision to know what can we do with that or who's going to buy the end product, um, well, then you actually don't have a deal at all. So 
uh, figuring out cash flow, figuring out numbers. Like a lot of people just look at like a cash flow pro forma. Um, it's kind of like just plug in the numbers of what the upstairs can rent for, the downstairs can rent out for, and um, you know, then it's it's they can determine whether that's a good purchase or not. I, I see on a lot of Facebook groups. Um, people advertising, hey, we have whatever, this deal for sale, and investors comment under, send me the pro forma, send me the pro forma. And uh, as soon as you send that, I just feel like there's not enough of the story of that property that you can um, see or tell to determine whether it's a, it's a good investment. Um, so I guess trying to not go on a tangent here, but I guess... Um, when you're buying a, a good investment, you want to look for for cash flow. So that could be something that you're looking for. So you are looking at what the uh, the house will rent for versus what you're paying. So what's the um, payout for what you're putting into the home? So figuring that out. Um, the second thing that you could be looking at is the appreciation of the home in that area. So trying to figure out, um, you know, Edmonton's not typically known as a spot that is going to appreciate like crazy yeah. like in in bc and ontario you talk to investors there they're not really looking at the cash flow they could be losing money every month on a certain home but that doesn't mean it's a bad deal um because that home could appreciate you know 20 grand every month it could you know in a year it could appreciate 100 grand and that's where they're finding the good deal uh yeah where where Alberta's not or Edmonton's not quite the same um but there are certain parts of the city that you could look at where you're you're paying a bit more but um you see that there's more valuable uh, appreciation in in the area um so the other thing that people uh don't see in a pro forma always is like vacancy and repairs so that's the other costs that sometimes are posted into a pro into a pro forma, which if you don't know um, what's gone into that property, then you can't really tell those numbers. They're kind of just a guess in my opinion. So um, like a lot of legal suites on MLS right now, if it says it's a legal suite or an illegal suite, uh, some investors just look at that and say, oh, it's a, it's a legal suite. So that means that you can get this kind of rent or it's worth this much. When you actually don't know, you know, what kind of uh, water heaters in there is it electric or is it you know a power vented gas or an atmospheric uh, hot water tank to know that um, electric is going to cost you way more do you have baseboard heaters because that's going to make a difference um, on your numbers what's the soundproofing like uh, you can have a legal suite um, in Edmonton that was grandfathered from whatever 20 years ago that actually doesn't have any soundproofing in the home but it's still considered a legal suite where today's standard um like the code has changed so that now you actually have to have a sound bad insulation, res bar, um, a drywall throughout to mitigate the, the sounds. Um, and then we go even further. So um, I guess that's the other thing that you have to look at is that if you're working with a contractor who really focuses on these types of homes, um, we'll go beyond the, the code and, and do like a sono pan or we'll double up on the uh, sound insulation will move certain ductworks around um, just to make sure that uh, in my mind like a huge cost is is vacancy that like you could 
have good cash flow, but if your tenants are moving out every year, well then that really throws off your numbers. Um, we also change out like everything in the house when we renovate it, like the windows, the insulation, the drywall, the roof, the downspouts, the gutters, the grating around the house. We uh, some, sometimes you know do sump pumps or we'll uh, waterproof the foundation walls. Um, like start to finish, I want to make sure that when my product's done, that I'm not having vacancy or I'm really um, mitigating my vacancy to a minimum and um, my repair costs. I don't want to have repairs. So all of our appliances and um, whatever else we put in there, it, we're trying to bring really good tenants to the place who are going to stay. And we're, we hope that the home um, isn't going to have a lot of repairs through that, that time which really makes a big difference in your cash flow numbers. So um, I guess, yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to determine when you just look at on paper of what this home is actually going to cash flow, or what the return is. So um, like the, the best way to know for us personally is for me, for us internally to go in, buy a house and renovate it to our standard to know that the costs and the things that we're putting into the home will um, help on those cash flow numbers. But if you're buying a property off MLS and don't know what's behind the walls or you're not thinking about those factors, then if you just look at the pro forma, um, it might show some kind of cash flow number of X, but then you're finding out later that, oh no, we've had to put way more repairs, we've had way more vacancy, the the rents are, are dropping, or you know, some people factor in appreciation into their pro forma. Um, I don't think you should bank on that. So I just, it's so much more complicated than just looking at pro forma. I guess that's where it has to, yeah. to go back to. And, and you have to look at the, not only the cash flow, but the, the vacancy, the repairs and the appreciation. And those are all key factors into de in determining if that property is going to make sense for you. I definitely um, agree with that. You want to keep your vacancy low because it doesn't matter if you're taking cash flow in every month and then, you know, uh, you, you putting know, it back, changing over. Yeah, exactly. You know, you change it over tenants and then you lose in that again every time. Um, as well as, you know, like you said, if um, if it's renovated properly, you can then keep your contingencies lower as well, knowing that, um, you know, uh, knowing what to expect for repairs or, or that sort of thing. But I want to know when someone, so you spoke about viewing like a pro forma and obviously that not being uh, the be all end all in deciding if it's a good buy or not if, if someone goes to go view a property so let's say they they've narrowed it down it looks like it could meet their criteria they go and view a property um what key things are you looking for uh when when you go to view a property to sort of maximize that cash flow potential now like you say cash flow in itself is is not the only factor to consider but um it is one of the factors so what would you be looking at um, you know, with regards to cash flow, and then of course, like you mentioned, all the other things to keep vacancy down, to keep repairs down, that combination to get the most out of your property, to squeeze the most value out of it um, beyond the the, the performer itself. What are you looking for? Because I feel like there's an eye to that, right? Um, as as a an investor, um, looking for things that people may not be looking for, and and seeing opportunities to you know either renovate it in a certain way or um, you know break it into multiple suites, that sort of thing. What key things do you look for when you go view a property? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. And, and it, um, of course, <laughs> and it, it is um, something that has so many different 
uh, factors to it and, and you can't group it all together. So again, like we were saying, if you're looking for maximum cash flow, um, cash on cash return, um, I think there's, you know, some, I have to say it, some slumlords out there who only care about cash flow and they're going into really rough neighborhoods. Um, I know one investor who he, he'll go to uh, a certain spot in, in Saskatchewan and there's actually areas where you can buy homes for $30,000. Um, there's not much to them. They don't even have a basement. Uh, they're kind of falling over, but they can bring in $900 of uh, rent, $900 to $1,000 of rent per month. So the numbers, the, ca the cash flow, the return is unbelievable. But then you're dealing with, you know, do you want to be that that slumlord, you know, or do you want to have? No, but keeping things ethical, like the way you would do it yourself. Uh, when you go view a property, you're like, okay, it might not cash flow. Or it might not make the most financial sense to just buy this single family home and rent it out as is. Probably better to add another suite in, at the bottom like you do. Or maybe we can split this duplex into, into a fourplex and then increase yeah. our cash flow that way. Of course, keeping the quality, keeping the standard all ethical. Um, yeah just like those things in mind, like the layout of the property, maybe looking for properties that have a walkout basement. And then that would be just an easier way to have less capital in, but still get that additional suite, like just those sort of things. If we're trying to do this on an ethical level, yeah. what, what are some things that you'd look out for? Um, yeah. So I think it comes down to, um, yeah, if you have a property, like you're saying, the more doors per, per property, like maximizing the amount of doors, will up your cash flow. So sometimes we'll buy, well, like I said, if we buy a single family home and then add a secondary suite downstairs, now it's one dwelling to two. Or if we buy a duplex and add uh, basement dwellings, then we have a fourplex, um, which are now, you know, in M10, you're starting to see the six plexes, the eight plexes, plexes and more. So it just brings your cost per door down is what I'm finding. So that's going to maximize your cash flow. But then you have to be renovating those spaces um, to make sure the vacancy works because, um, you know, I, I've heard of a, a lot of investors who, who buy the, the bungalow and have it rented. Then they say, oh, well, you know, I, I like the idea of the suited house. And then they buy that. Then they want to buy the fourplex, the sixplex, the eightplex. And as they get bigger, they're actually finding that people aren't staying around as long. Well, the reason is because you're stuffing more and more people into one dwelling. So then there's more potential of issues. So maximizing cash flow, yeah, get more doors into a building. But then we want, again, like when we do that, we want to be thinking, like I find the most success for us is by keeping vacancy low. So then separating everything, that's probably like the biggest one for us. Um, like no shared laundry, no shared entrance, no shared, even um, like some of the garages will put up wall dividers, some of the yards. We just finished a fourplex where it was one big yard in the back. We actually put up uh, different fences so that everyone has their own separate yard. Um, I saw that. Yeah. Oh, you saw that one? Yeah. And, and it's worked fantastically. Yeah. Um, and it's not that people can't get along. Like, I mean, that is something very important that you want to be renting to people who are similar lifestyle styles so that they can get along, but still just being able to give them as much privacy, privacy. Yeah. as, as possible parking, like the more doors you have, um, the more parking you need. Um, so if you're looking at a property that just doesn't, you know, some people look at a property and doesn't have a garage and they go, oh, well, 
you know, we can still make it work. Well, I've, I've found that parking can actually be like a deal breaker for a lot of people. You can have a beautiful house with no parking or no garage. And, you know, we, we live in Edmonton. It's just the reality that people want a place to, to put their car when it's minus 40 out. Um, pet friendly, that's another thing that we try and keep in mind to maximize the longevity. A, long, a lot of these people renting um, don't want to be in an apartment building because they want some kind of yard space or quick access to a yard. Um, so how are you building the home to accommodate pets for sound and for the longevity? Um, and yeah, I think, um, if you can, if you can add value, I mean, that's a whole nother ball game. Um, so as like a, a newer investor, I would say stick to just try trying to buy a, a turnkey property. But yeah, if you're trying to maximize, uh, your dollar figure, then trying to buy something that, um, that you can obviously add add value to um, so that you can force the appreciation on the home. Absolutely. And um, I like a few of the things that you said there. Like, you know, one thing is, of course, and I'm paraphrasing, um, is, you know, the cash flow isn't everything because you have to consider like the tenant profile as well, right? Because if you squeeze the most amount of doors that you can in, what sort of tenants are you getting? And then when it comes to managing the property and all of that, those are things to consider as well. So you definitely want to be um, renovating or, or or have that end in mind in who are you who are you going to be renting this out to, um, and then privacy privacy I complete I, I completely agree with that one I think that that's a big factor in determining um, you know if people are going to stay with you for for a lot longer because I know like like m- myself as you know um, whenever I've looked for a place to rent. Um, privacy was a big factor like sure I don't mind um having other people around me but I would prefer that if I could have my own yard or or have that private space so I think I think that's a big factor as well and like you say if you're going to consider renting to people with pets I think you open up your market share as well but yeah I just wanted to see your thoughts on like I know um that's a common thing in Edmonton is creating a legally suited basement um just to sort of make the numbers work with regards to um, the money coming in and being able to pay those expenses so that for the most part, if if it's done right and if the market's not too bad, nothing's coming out of pocket, right? Um, but with regards to that, like uh, when it comes to creating uh, legal suites, do you have any tips for people out there going to go view homes? Like, you know, what to look for in a home, like maybe looking for a, a raised bungalow or a buy level or something so that you, you can have bigger windows maybe in the basement so that it's more appealing or uh, a walkout, you know, walkout basement so that there's less renovations that way, looking for specific square footage. Like what are some tips that people may not be considering um, when looking to go convert a single family home into into a suite basement? Yeah, I guess to backtrack a bit about what you were saying um, earlier is that um, um, when, yeah, when, when people want to be looking at cash flow numbers or performance numbers, typically our uh, finished product, if I just send you a um, perform on it, it actually won't show as, it, it won't, the numbers won't look as impressive as like I was saying, more of those like rundown properties or the illegally suited properties or whatever, whatever else. Um, but but yeah. the, the management 
uh, cost or the, um, like we're talking vacancy and repairs, like that's, that, that cost is so much higher than um, what a pro forma shows if you don't have the right type of, of property. So um, I think a lot of people also, when they think of getting into this uh, investment space, they want to try and do the renovations themselves or do that burr project. Um, you know, sometimes it's not as sexy when we like show a finished product and we go, Hey, do you want to buy this? And they go like, no, we want to build one. And, um, yeah. you know, what you kind of what, the questions that you're asking, like, what should we look for? Like, what do you buy for? What do you renovate for? Um, well, we, we've done a ton of these things and it's a full-time job for us and we take it really seriously. So if you're going to go buy a finished product, hopefully you're working with someone who is, um, who's done it and cares enough about their finished product that it's not just a flip for them, if that makes sense, that they're not, they're yeah. not just cutting corners and putting in the cheapest things. So, um, I think that's one advantage of kind of working with us or working with someone who, um, has done a lot of these or building these, like in my, in my mind, I build them in a way that I try and say, like, if I was to move in here tomorrow, what would I want put into the place? Um, and so typically that is, um, you know, like we're saying, the privacy, the the ways that we can really split everything up. So I typically like a garage, a detached garage in the back so that there's parking in the front and the back. So you can separate that, separate entrances. Not a lot of people are doing this, uh, but we are looking at four level splits. Um, and the reason for that is because of sound separation, but also um, because the basement suite um, kind of has the stigma of like, you're a basement dweller, a basement troller, you never see light. Yeah. And um, I've seen some investors lately, they're digging deeper in their foundations and putting bigger windows in the basements, uh, which makes a di big yeah. difference. Um, you know, a lot of LED pot lights, they cost more, but man, they make a big difference. Um, and then in the four level splits, we're actually finding that we're buying um, some of these four level split properties where the third level of the property is at ground height so we can actually advertise once the the product is finished the upper unit obviously has the you know up to above grade um levels but the the basement suite or the lower suite um the main level that you walk into is on ground floor and then uh we either put a bed the bedrooms or the kitchen into the lower unit into the basement and we can actually advertise that as a main floor suite because um, at least 50% of the unit is above grade, which is really cool. Um, so we find that people tend to, to rent for a longer time and are happier to stay in that lower suite. Um, just because they are, they aren't feeling like they're living, um, in a basement. So that's kind of the biggest, there's a, a many different factors that I look for when, when buying a property, but those stand out to me the most right now is if, the lower suite, um, is, it's typically in four level splits, is that we can get one of those floors at, at ground level or a walkout basement, like you're okay. saying. To be honest, you, you, you technically just answered my next oh. question because that had to do with four level yeah, splits yeah. <laughs> and, you know, deciding uh, if it's worth it to convert it into a duplex or not. So um, great, great answer on that one. Um, another question is, do you self-manage your, your rental property? Yeah. Um, 
We do. Uh, our team internally uh, does. Um, my brother-in-law actually works uh, with us and he's like a site supervisor and project manager for us. And um, we've actually integrated, uh, like we have a, a company app that um, works for our sub trades. Um, it works for our clients. So if you're getting a renovation done with us, you have access to this app and also our renters have access to the app. And um, how it works is that um, if they have an issue with their uh, place, let's say a piece of flooring is loose or, um, I don't know, a, a light doesn't work or some kind of question, they can actually just plug that into the app, which then notifies uh, Matt, our site supervisor. And then from there, he can contact our, our subtrades or he can come take care of it himself. He, uh, we have a cargo like working van with all the tools that we need in it. And he has his uh, laptop set up in there at all times. So while, you know, our, our team can be doing renovations throughout the day, like our subtrades can be working, then we also have the, the site supervisor who can drive around and make sure everyone has the right tools, things are going well. And then it just allows us to be able to um, act as good landlords, I guess, that as soon as there's an issue that we can come kind of the next day and assess the situation, either take care of it right there or book in our, our trade um, right away. It also gives you updates of, you know, when your upcoming bill is and what has been paid. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what we're doing to, to self-manage at this point. Um, uh, we have six doors right now. Like we're not looking to have a uh, hundred doors ever. Uh, we kind of want to yeah. keep it at, at that spot, like having, um, you know, a maximum probably of, of 10 doors at a time but then always having those properties also for sale so that we have some renovations on the go, some rentals on the go, and we're doing real estate um, as well. But yeah, that's kind of how our team takes care of our, our job sites, but also our, our renters. And, um, you know, if we're keeping those tenants up to date and happy with everything that's going on, um, then, you know, they take care of our properties is what we found. So. Okay. That's, um, I think that that's interesting because, you know, I don't think you have to deal with as like, it's not as time intensive for yourself if you have a team handling it. And <clears throat> if it's in-house, you can sort of have it done your way. But I guess you still manage, are you still managing the team? I think it's a myth to say that like anything in business or in real estate investing is passive unless like, like our money part partners sometimes like money partners sometimes are truly like they just we have some guys that just have money put money in a bank account and then we just make that work and and they are truly um passive but no i still have um you know weekly meetings with uh, my team and we have our systems in place so that i'm not i'm not having to go fix the toilet or whatever every time an issue comes up but i'm still aware of what's going on people can still contact me so um yeah just since since we already have the renovation piece in place then it's it's that we can already add in the next piece to take care of of the properties there and then um it, yeah there's there's just kind of a huge benefit to having that built in in-house and and also like i know a lot of um property managers um in the city right now maybe 
you know, good with the people and setting up the contracts. But then as soon as there's some kind of construction issue, they, they don't know where to begin. And it, it's usually like calling the plumber at an odd time and getting a service call fee. And then, and then there can be a $250 bill for like the most little fix that needed to be done. Or like you're calling the electrician just because the panel, like something on the panel turned off or something. So that's, what's really nice is that we already have our interior um, contractors, like our electrician, plumber, uh, HVAC, like we have the, all those guys set up and, and our site supervisor has that connection with them so that he can go check on things and either fix it himself, diagnose it himself, or it's like a FaceTime call with the electrician who's not charging us that extra service call. And then if we need to bring them in, then, then we have to, but, um, Again, it, it cuts down on those management calls, vacancy and repair costs um, that so many people just factor in that that we just don't we don't have as high of costs in those in those areas. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what I mean by that is so from the looks of it, it seems like you more would work on the business there as opposed to being in the business. You're not getting any late night phone calls yourselves, right? You you sort of there's there's people in place that sort of handle that and then um you you um you focus on other parts of the business, but you, you're still aware of what's going on. Is that correct? Yeah, to a degree. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't want to, like, I don't want people to think that, that the reality is that you can just build this business and then, like, I can just go sit um, in Mexico oh, and, like, everything runs, not at all. runs so perfectly. Like, it's, yeah. it's just that if you want to scale, I just found that if you want to scale, you have to be able to implement adding people to your team and implementing these processes so that you can manage uh, those people. But I, I still, you know, I still know all the tenants by name and know when they pay their rent and when they don't and when there's an issue. It's just that when an issue comes up, it's not, yeah, me running out there with my, you know, my drill and hammer. Sometimes it might be. Sometimes it might have to be me. Um, but, yeah, we, we do... Have, okay. have, a, have a team and, and systems in place that allow us to be the most um, uh, effective with our time, I guess, and, and efficient. Well, um, speaking about managing your rental properties, what's the biggest challenge that you've had and um, how were you able to overcome that? Um, making sure people get along, I would say, is like a big one. You know, I'm thinking back to one time when I rented a, a suite to uh, two cousins who, you know, I thought they're, they're cousins, they'll get along and everything will work out. Or like a young couple, right? You just think like, oh, hopefully they stay together. You kind of hope for the best. And then sometimes yeah. it doesn't always work out. So, um, you know, if one person's on title or on the, on the lease, what does that look like? If both are on the lease, what does that look like? If one just gets up and leaves? So, um, you know, figuring out those things, which um, has changed kind of how I have set up my rentals. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just putting in one bedroom suites where a lot of investors don't like that. They're like, Oh, that, that would make it so hard to rent out. Well, in my mind, it's actually, you're either renting to like one single working professional or like, uh, a married couple, um, that should be together for a while, but you're not like the more people involved, the trickier. Um, sometimes I found, uh, and, and communication, that was, that's my other biggest thing, um, basically in all aspects of my business, but 
definitely with these tenants that making sure that the tenants know that yes I'm the landlord but I'm also like wanting this to work out for you I want this to be a good experience for you so if you are wanting to have some friends over that's okay but just let me know like or if you want to make a change of the yard or the garage or the house or you want to paint a wall that's probably okay but let me know um, if something broke if a friend came over and punched a hole in the wall we're going to work that out but the last thing that I want is to not know or for there to be surprises or you trying to cover something up um, I just said like I'm going to yeah. be as upfront with you as possible if you can be as upfront with me as possible and there's just kind of a mutual respect there that I find you know maybe we will get a, an extra call here or there of like hey I just noticed whatever they notice that uh, the furnace was making a louder sound than usual yesterday but I'd way rather have that than um, something sounds funny and no one says anything for a while because they don't want to bother me you know so um, yeah. so that's probably my biggest my biggest one and just just treating people like like people like not just looking at them as like for their money and I said even if you have a tough month and you, you can't pay rent that's okay like we all have tough times in our lives I want to work with you on that uh, like we are a business we're not a charity so you can't live here for free but I'm here to yeah. make something work work for you so um, it's a people business absolutely it definitely is um, I you know you spoke about this and um, I also saw that you used to house hack now, for people out there who are maybe interested in house hacking, could you break down how house hacking works? Um, maybe share some advice for people looking to explore that option? Yeah, sure. So house hacking, um, I think, is like a game changer. I think it is like a life hack. And there's two different ways that you can you can house hack. So um, one way is that it's you own a home and you rent out the rooms while living there. So you're bringing in um, some rental income while living there. Or uh, you can buy a home and renovate it while living there. So um, I did I did both when I uh, wasn't married and didn't have kids. <laughs> and I would, uh, you know, have the inflatable mattress under the stairs in amidst like a disgusting demo demolished house that I was putting back together um, just because it, it brings your your living expenses down if you can live in a, in a house that you're bringing value to that you're gonna make money off of then yeah there's huge savings there so I would do that I, I'd renovate a home while I was living there um, but then once it was renovated um, I would you know rent out the rooms while I lived there and um, yeah, I lived with some good friends or some people I met off Kijiji. And um, it just brought my living expenses to nothing, right? Or I was cash flowing the home while, while living there, um, which can make a big difference in, in your monthly budget. I think, I think Gary Vee talks about it, but going on the offense that so many people are focused on how to make more money when he's saying, like, figure out how to decrease your expenses like make money while yeah. also living frugally even for a while and then it, then you can start going on the offense and and investing your money um you know people always talk about using other people's money in investment but 
um, in my mind, it was like, how can I make enough money so that I'm using my own money so that I'm benefiting from from my investment and my money's not just going to a car payment or to pay for a, a mortgage or whatever else. But I think, I think house hacking, I think it takes a real ego check. And I think it's like, you don't want to be telling your friends that, you know, you have the rooms rented out or like maybe you can afford to live in a house on your own. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you're too good to house hack or too good to have renters in your house. Um, and when I, even when I first got married uh, to my wife, uh, the first house that we built together, um, I was like, we're, we're putting a, a suite in the basement. She's like, I don't want to live with someone else. And uh, I kind of showed her how we do it and separate everything. And it's basically like you don't even know the person's living there. But it, it turned out into a situation where um, my wife's a nurse. And then we, were end, we ended up renting our suite to uh, you know, single nurse ladies. And then I'd come home and, and my wife and our tenant would be like drinking wine together and watching the bachelorette or whatever. <laughs> so it turned out to, to be a really good experience. Um, and, yeah. and then when we had kids, you know, now we have our own place cause I'm sure my kids would be way too loud and annoying for, uh, other tenants. Um, but we could keep, you know, the property as a good, uh, rental unit, moving forward but to get to that point um you have to take a bit of an ego hit to say like oh, I'm, go I'm gonna live with some other renters just to be able to go on the offense uh later on i agree with that is sure i think it's very important to focus on on the money coming in right because there's only so much you can save with the money going out but if you're not if you're not conscious about the money going out you know you could bring more money in and just end up unconsciously spending more money anyway and having you know that um income creep so you could end up upgrading your vehicles upgrading your home all of that and not building wealth in order to build wealth you you sort of really need to be earning a lot more than what you're living off of and it, it takes balancing out both sides and just like you touched on if you know if you're not a single person who's who's able to rent out a whole bunch of rooms in a house um you can easily then just put in a basement suite and you know you can still sort of house act to some degree where you have someone else decreasing your monthly expenses and the more you save the more you can then put towards investing either in yourself or you know in real estate or whatever it is that's going to increase the money coming in so i think you definitely have to focus on both because if you focus on one side exclusively um you know the money is just going to end up going out or you're not going to have enough money coming in um so i think house hacking is a, a really great strategy for 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 a lot of people um of course you can't always like you said if you have some kids it, if you have kids you have a wife it may not work out especially if you're um the suites downstairs i mean maybe it'll work out with a side by side i don't know what you think about that it could work out I, I, it's just um you know what are you willing what are you willing to do and and in my single days i was definitely willing uh when we first got married still willing when we first had our first child uh, we made it work for a bit, but then after that, you know, there was a point where, where we moved on and um, could still keep, you know, the rental property there. But this, I actually think that this is probably going to be kind of the next wave that we'll see in um, Alberta. We saw it in Vancouver, um, yeah, throughout BC and Ontario is that as interest rates are going up now and like it's becoming uh, just too expensive to afford a home yeah 
maybe instead of, uh, you know, having to sell your home and downsize to a smaller house or to a condo, then um, I think why not, you know, maybe refinance your house, pull out some of that equity, put that equity to work and put a, a suite in your house. And then you can stay in that house, rent out the basement. As you get older, maybe your kids want to live in there. And yeah, we saw that a ton in BC and Ontario. And I think it's going to become more of a norm here in Edmonton um, as either house prices go up or interest rates go up or both. Um, because it's, you know, like we're saying, like, um, just to make life more affordable, it makes such a big difference having that uh, bit of income, extra income coming in. It's a great idea, like you're saying, instead of, you know, possibly losing your house and not being able to afford it or having to sell it, why not try that strategy out? Um, it's, I think it's also an easy way for someone who hasn't had much experience investing to get sort of like a close hands-on experience in dealing with tenants and, um, you know, renovating a property. You know, even if you're outsourcing it, it's it's at your primary residence. Um, you know, you, you can have more of a handle on things. Um, but but yeah, you're absolutely right. Also, is uh, you know you need to be saving, and people's biggest expenses tend to be their homes, right? So if you can if you can really cut down that expense, um, you know that's that's um, taking a big chunk out of your your spending each month. So I think it's definitely a good strategy for 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 people to consider, depending on their situation. But um, I've also noticed that you've dabbled a little bit with um, commercial projects. Now, more specifically multi-family um can you speak about the experience that you've had with commercial projects and how they differ from the residential projects that you've worked on yeah we were uh, fortunate enough to um to dabble in the apartment building um model there was uh, a 12 unit apartment building that we uh did a caber strategy on and uh, it was more of a cosmetic um you know, all the tenants uh, moved out, except for two, I think, and um, just renovated the, the building top to bottom, and then uh, up the rents, and then re-rented everything. And um, yeah, in those, in those multifamily buildings, uh, it's, your, it's your cap rate that um, decides, you know, what the, the value of the property is, and what the bank will, will give you for your, for your lending. So, um, you know, a totally different game and different strategy. But um, I guess we were talking about this before is that, yeah, how to maximize your dollar or your cash flow is just to own more doors per, per building. So um, it brought our renovation costs down, we could say, per unit because we're repeating it 12 times. And when the painter comes, we could negotiate a better rate or a countertop guy or whatever else. So, um, I mean, it has its different struggles of trying to figure out uh, how to make 12 groups of people live together and work in that space. Um, but yeah, overall, um, really, really cool project. And and it, the, the biggest thing I probably learned was how important a design uh, and a, having a budget um, and a timeline all in place before you do the work was. Like you can get away with buying a little project in Edmonton, like a condo or a small house and kind of, you know, faking your way through the, the reno and trying to make it look nice and then um, make some money on the back end. Um, but when you have a big project like that, it's very, like $10,000 can be gone very quickly if you 
uh, don't uh, calculate enough flooring or painting or whatever, trim baseboards or whatever. So um, uh, we took the time to get a, a good design done up first, then uh, got the subtrades in to get it all quoted out properly off of our design, and then from there put together a realistic timeline, and then make sure that our project management was going in place to make sure that there's a successful um, project in the end. Uh, so, you know, after we did that project, I just saw going forward, like I know there's a lot of people that don't use designers or like electrical plans, HVAC drawings, layout drawings for their fix and flip projects or for their suited homes in Edmonton. But now it's like, we can't do a project without that. Um, and then now I'm hearing like a lot of people are doing these fix and flips right now or their suited projects. And they're like, oh, it would have been such a good project. But we, you know, went over budget by 15 grand and we took an extra three weeks and it killed the project. And it's like, well, you know, I face that too. But um, we can mitigate that by just taking the extra time off the start of the project to plan things out accordingly. Um, and I think everyone thinks they do that but they're also so excited just to get in there with the sledgehammer because you know demolition is so fun and as soon as they get those keys it's like well let's let's go to work and um it often ends up being that you're you're jumping into things without without a plan and then it ends up costing you in the end so i don't know if that answers your question that definitely does um so so uh, after you did that 12 unit apartment you sort of just changed your whole strategy and outlook for each property you had going forward? Uh, yeah, definitely just our uh, project management, how we're doing project management, um, how we're looking at design, how we're using design. Um, yeah, all these all these deals come down to, uh, like with the contractor, if they can do it on budget and on time, that'll that'll make or break your, your deal. And um, you have to be very confident going into that, knowing the, those numbers and... Um, and if you if you set up the project right from the start and and it's kind of this really slowing down the start to make the end go so much quicker but um yeah. people are impatient that makes sense uh, i'm impatient too and it's like you just want to see results so it's like you know on the first flip that i ever did it was like the first thing i bought was like some flooring and a new mailbox and a doorbell i think i bought like i think i just went to home depot and it was just buying like things that I could put in the house because I was so excited to like finish it without even knowing like, well, what is my budget for this and how is this going to look and what time do I want the yeah. flooring to come in or, um, you know, I, I used to have drywall like delivered to the garage before, like right at the start of the project. And then it was in the way of other things and then carpet was packed on top of it. And then the, you know, the contractors were getting in each other's way and then carpet was getting wrecked and, doorknobs were going missing and it was like we just didn't have a good enough design and plan and um project management we didn't have that skill figured out to make those projects go smoothly and and you need that on those bigger projects so that was a good learning lesson and i, I think the fact that you started with um on a smaller scale just helped you with that because like you said uh when when it comes to doing multifamily. Um, any mistake is now magnified, right? Um, any loss becomes a bigger loss. So you have to be a little more careful with your numbers there. You touched on the fact that um, with a multifamily, you know, it's it's uh, cap rate. 
could you could you just break that down for people who don't know what it is and how you sort of dealt with that part of um the deal differently as how you would with your general single family, you know, duplex, triplex, uh, fourplex, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar um, formula that you're looking at when you're looking at just like a single family home and you're looking at the numbers of what is the costs that are going to go, like what are my monthly costs going into this building? And then what are my, um, uh, what's my income from this building? And then what is that return that comes out on the end? You want to set up your uh, single family projects in that same sense that you're you're cash flowing um but the banks don't look at you like your lenders don't or even appraisers don't look at a single family home just based on what you're getting for rent and what it costs to operate that building they're looking at like well what did the house down the street sell for so that's what your house is worth um or like yeah what kind of finishes do you put in the house where in these multifamily buildings they don't really care what the house or what the building looks like. They just care about the numbers. So, um, yeah. So when you're doing those projects, you just need to figure out how to get the most um, income coming in while minimizing your expenses, which will tell you the value of the property. So um, you can actually have a bank come appraise an apartment building um, at at certain rents, like a building just isn't renting for what the current market value is. And the bank will say, well, this building is only worth, I don't know, $800,000. And then it's a matter of the landlord going, okay, everyone, rent has gone up $100 this month. And moving forward, everyone resigns or agrees to that. Now you get a reappraisal, reappraiser coming in and they're looking at the new rental rates and, oh, now the building's worth you know, a million dollars, even though you haven't changed anything. So um, it's just a different, it's a different way to get lending and a different way that the, the lenders look at uh, those types of, of deals. What are some of the struggles that you faced in your real estate journey that stand out the most to you? Um, that stand out the most? Probably um, consistency is, is a tough one, um, especially when you're scaling. Like scaling is so incredibly hard. And I think a lot of people jump into the real estate space um, and it's scary to start that first deal. Then they do that first deal and they go, okay, how do I do like 10 deals? And um, it's, it's not that when you do one deal, that the result of that one deal is going to be the same as if you have eight deals on the go at the same time. Um, because you have so much more like management, you're going to need more management in place and office space, more overhead. Um, and it makes your, your risk or your reward higher the 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 bigger you get there um so um i would say that the hardest thing is being patient um i think everyone wants to be a millionaire tomorrow and wants to find wants to get out of their nine to five job tomorrow right and i think it uh another i think it's a gary v thing again i'm not even a huge gary v guy but i'm going back to some of his some of his <laughs> sayings today but it's um, I think he says people underestimate what they can do and or overestimate what they can do in a year but they underestimate what they can do in five years and I think that's really true and um, just sticking to the process so if a project goes poorly like we want to sit down with our team after each job and go what went well what didn't um, and how can we make adjustments um, moving forward and then not being like you know like I was saying at the start it might not be that 
oh, well, there's just no money in infill homes or there's no money in sweeted homes or there's no money in flipped homes. And they go, you should, we should try wholesaling. We should get my realtor license. Like everything has its pros and cons. Everything um, has a, like an easy side and a hard, hard side. And I think that you, you just have to take the time to learn your craft on each like wholesaling how, how can you make money in that? And when is it good and when is it bad? Um, flipping, when is it good, when is it bad? And, and just understanding each space, really taking the time to dive in and learn each realm um, <laughs> instead of just jumping from one to the next, thinking that the grass is going to be greener um, if you try something different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I completely ag agree with that, um, with that theory. And uh, I think it's unreasonable to think that if you do something for a long enough time period that, that you're still going to suck at it, right? Um, but it's, it's been able to, to do it consistent enough. And like I always say, or, you know, what I believe in is that consistency beats intensity. And I feel like a lot of people think that, you know, shiny coin syndrome, like, hey, here's a strategy that will work. They go intensely into that strategy but they don't they don't go long enough hard enough at it for a long enough time period that they can actually get the results and before they even get to that position they see something else and hey someone else is making money doing that strategy so let's hop on to that and you never really get good at anything so i firmly believe in playing for the long game i think that's where all the rewards lie and honing in on the process and 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 focusing on the actionable things that you can do each day over a long enough time period to get to get you to where you want to go to um, and cutting out all the noise because there's I mean there's there's money to be made in all different aspects around anything I mean real estate just been one of them um, if someone else is being profitable doing something else that doesn't mean that you need to jump into that as well yeah or or getting too big too fast you know um, people will find success in, in one job and then they go Oh, now I'm this master. Now I'm this, uh, I have it all figured out for fix and flips or whatever. It's like, well, you just haven't done it long enough to see the downside because there is a con to flipping. There is a con to doing sweet houses. There is a con to multifamily. Um, and that's where, you know, I haven't done this for 30 years, but I've done it long enough where I have seen, you know, some times of change. And, uh, you know, quick story is that, some investors that I was working with, they were buying suited houses with us and, you know, they're giving some return, but they wanted to get bigger. So then the next step was, well, we're going to buy uh, apartment buildings. So then they buy apartment buildings and they're telling me like, Nick, um, these things are cash flowing us like $20,000 a month and we're burning them and pulling out, you know, half a million dollars. And I'm thinking like, shoot, like I'm an idiot. Why am I not like I'm missing out. There's some kind of FOMO effect there. Um, but then years go by and you actually see that um, when times were tough, those apartment buildings actually took a huge hit. And then I was talking to those guys and they're like, we can't sell the place. We actually have it empty. We're losing 20 grand a month um, in cash flow uh, every year. And now I'm, and then I'm kind of saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm the expert, I'm the smart guy because I didn't invest in that where it's not the case. It's just that uh, over time, things change. What sounds good now might not be good tomorrow. 
and um, just being aware of of the good and the bad that that comes through everything. And uh, yeah, it's not all it's not all sunshine and uh, rainbows in in the real estate investing world. You got to take the good with the bad, and it not just be only about money. It's that that you love the space, that you love uh, what it has to offer, and you're not here just just for the paycheck at the end of the day. That's that's a big bonus. And I think that holds true for 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 any aspect in life or, or, or any pursuit that you know that, that you're going for is uh, it has to be about more than just the money and the people who are most successful at it are the people who are in it for more than just the money um money is just uh, a byproduct of you being good and efficient and passionate at what you're doing i i think that's that's a big thing that a big misconception that newer investors have is seeing all the upside that gets promoted and maybe not fully understanding the downside that comes with you know different strategies or the, just investing in general i do know another big problem that investors have is actually analyzing deals understanding you know how an investor thinks and how they have challenges and overcome them within a specific deal would you mind if we run through any one of your deals yeah 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 what kind of property is it and where is it located um so yeah again there's a bunch of different properties we can we can go after um this one we typically invest in the south of Edmonton, and the only reason for that is because that's where um, I grew up. Like I grew up in Sherwood Park, and then I moved to Riverbend, so it's kind of like southeast and southwest is where I feel the most comfortable or most educated, I guess, and it's the closest to where I live. So for managing and doing projects, that's always the easiest, um, but in this case, um, a uh, wholesaler contacted me directly and said, hey, I have a lead on a home in the northwest of Edmonton. And it's a bungalow. You know, it was uh, over a thousand square feet. It had a decent yard, a double detached garage in the back and a separate entrance so that you could suite it. So they already know kind of what I'm going after. Those are kind of the main criterias. Um, the, the area wasn't like my first choice, but something that I could work with. And then he told me the price, it was like two fifty five. I already knew that um, homes in that area I could make with my numbers to, to suite the houses that if I'm, you know, sub 300,000, it could work for me. So I wanted to go um, take a look at that. But yeah, my, my first thing is kind of have my criteria of what I want and then trying to buy uh, a home that I feel is undervalued for the area that it's in, but it also has potential to that I can add um, value to it. So you need you need to be able to say like, hey, there's a suited home in that area that sold for X. So we knew that you know some were selling in that area for four four sixty. This home was two fifty five. Um, yeah, I guess I'm jumping into the numbers. The next question will be, how did you find it? You already answered that. You said you got yeah. it through a wholesaler. And then the next one is, if you can run us through the numbers. So you started, so yeah. by all means. Yeah, so, and, and to go back, sorry, that we do buy um, deals like through the MLS, um, but we do find that the best deals are through wholesalers or we have um, a separate uh, system. So we have a website called quickhomebuyer.ca that, um, we put a good amount of money into every month to uh, generate off-market leads 
And um, we typically find that those types of leads um, allow us to uh, have the most success on the back end of finishing our projects. And it's not because we're taking advantage of people or that wholesalers are taking advantage of people. It's uh, a lot of these people just need something done quickly or they don't want the advertising of everyone online knowing that their house is for sale. Um, it's usually that they need need to move on quickly and that's where we buy cash so then um, we can actually fulfill that need and uh, sometimes can get a discount with that. And um, I guess how I have my business set up is that the less people involved in a project, um, it allows us to have um, a higher back end of uh, profit. So the less people involved, higher the profit, typically. So um, it also makes your um, it act, it also makes it more risky to have less people involved. Um, your risk goes higher, but your your profit could be higher there too. So um, we yeah we bought this house for two hundred fifty five thousand. Um, we did our renovations for one hundred fifteen thousand, um, and. To put that out there, that's probably not a realistic expectation for most people to go and hire a contractor for 115. If you if you hear that number, I would probably run away and be like that something's not adding up here. This contractor is too low, and that's not a good thing. Um, the reason we can do that is because we have the team internally. It's all well, it's all in house. So yeah. um, typically, a contractor will mark up their work 20 to 30 percent. Um, and we get the benefit of, of saving on that. And then the other benefit that we have is that, um, yeah, we bought, we bought from a wholesaler, so there's no extra realtor commissions involved. Um, and then when we do these deals, they're purchased with cash. So there's no high interest, um, lending rate and there's no mortgage penalty. Um, that being said, we set up our, our deal so that um, everyone has an interest in the property. So the realtor or the person who's buying or finding the deal or selling the deal is getting um, a third of the profit. The contractor is working at cost but getting a third of the profit and the money partner is putting in cash and making it quick and easy for us to get our job done but they're getting a third of the profit. So the idea of that is that if, if uh, everyone charges all these fees to get there, then at the end your profit's so small that if there's a little slip up somewhere, then there's no there's no profit to be made, and the person putting the deal together gets you know stuck holding the bag and not making any money. Um, so I like the idea of having my money partner, my realtor, and my contractor all have an interest in the property to say I'm not going to charge any money for this project, and if the project makes a hundred grand, hey, that's more for everyone. But if it goes poor, well, I'm going to take a cut and everyone else will, but we're winning or losing together. together. That's just yeah. how we set up set up our deals. Um, so back to the numbers. So 255 we purchased, 115 we renovated for, and then our, um, you know, we just had to pay for our property taxes, our uh, legal fees, and some utilities, uh, which typically comes in around $5,000 for us, uh, in one of those types of projects that takes you know five to six months and then so we were into that project for three hundred and eighty thousand dollars so if we just stopped right there 
um, to be into a legally suited um, home done to our spec uh, for $380,000. We could rent the upstairs for $1,650 typically and the basement for $1,350. So the home brings in about $3,000 a month. Um, if you put that into a pro forma, that's a great return for a $380,000 investment, especially when the property, um, like we got an appraisal, appraiser to come in and they're appraising that property at four sixty. Um, luckily with the interest rates at the time and with the uh, house prices in Edmonton, but also the rental rates, it kind of creates this perfect storm for great cash flow um, in Edmonton. And that's what it's known for, or was known for before the interest rates went through the roof. So um, at the time for us to either hold it, it's a great property, but for us to sell it for its new appraised value of 460, um, some investors could come in and have a property that's cash flowing like $700 a month and you're having a mortgage pay down and potential appreciation and low vacancy and low maintenance. So we ended up selling the property um, when we were done. So for 460, and, and we had the connection for the, um, for the end buyer. So there's about $85,000 of profit in that, that specific deal. Um, we were fortunate enough that like, we have the, the realtor aspect or the buying selling aspect covered, the contractor aspect and the, the money covered. So um, if I'm just to tell people we did you know, a flip like this and it's an $85,000 return, that's not typically like that's not a realistic expectation because um we're we're doing it all in-house and um i think that it's not unfair to say that this isn't an unrealistic set of numbers that someone else can achieve but they have to bring the value in all those those areas but let's say we do a deal and we've done this many times and we want to meet more people who would team up with us. So let's say there's someone out there who wants to bring the money to one of our deals or they want to be a contractor reaches out to us and wants to do a deal together or um, a realtor, a wholesaler who finds a great house. Um, if you're doing, taking on one of those um, parts of the deal, then, you know, the 85,000 kind of gets broken up, um, you know, three ways and I think it's just over $28,000, right? So $28,000 could go to your, to the realtor front end and $28,000 profit to your contractor and then $28,000 to your, your money partner. And those are still good numbers for each player. And then it also um, lessens your risk because if things didn't go well, I would be stuck having to pay all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, you can go even further and have like, the money partner, if they get a third of the profit, there could be like five money partners in there. So they're going to make less money, but then it's mitigating those risks. But that's just typically how we have our deals set up so that if the flip goes well, okay, we make a profit. If it doesn't go quite as well, let's say we couldn't sell it, then we have a good rental property. But the last thing that I would want to happen, and I, and I do see it, um, it's a common thing these days where some kind of real estate investor is out there and then they go hire a real estate agent, they hire a contractor, and they're paying a high interest lending rate and mortgage penalties, and then they're going, how come I'm not making any money? Yeah. You know, how come there's no money left in this deal? Well, everyone else is getting paid. You're just not paying yourself. So maybe we need to re um, renegotiate or re-set up how you're 
your terms of the deal are set up. Restructure that deal, or maybe you need to bring more value. Maybe you need to bring be the wholesaler, or you need to be the money lender, or you need to be the contractor um, to maximize those profits. I like that setup because uh, your contractors also incentivize to stick to the timeline. Um, everyone on the team wants to get it done because if everyone does their job good enough, then everyone wins. Um, whereas if you're just getting paid regardless, then yeah. your motivation is not at the same level, you know? Well, that like, a, let's say I'm a realtor and I just get paid if it, if it closes. Well, I'm, you know, more likely to tell my client, hey, things aren't, aren't selling. We need to drop the price 10 grand. Yeah. Well, that 10 grand reduction really doesn't make a big difference for the real estate commission, but it makes a huge difference for that investor. Yeah. But it's very easy for the realtor to say, oh, you know, we need to drop the price. Or it's easy for the contractor. Um, you know, I know some deals are set up where guys just hire a contractor at $50 an hour. And they go, oh, that's a fair rate. Well, the contractor goes, oh, yeah, the painting took an extra two days. I'm not saying like these guys are dirtbags trying to screw other people over. It's just that they don't have an incentive to yeah. get it done cheaper, quicker, or to even be thinking that. You know, when I used to pay guys hourly, it's like I would have to order extra baseboard because the guys weren't as careful with it. Or I'd have to order more flooring because they're going, oh, we have an extra box, whatever, throwing it in the garbage or, you know what I mean? They, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't affect them and that's just human nature. So um, creating a, a team aspect is kind of how we set up our deals and um, we found success with it. Um, but it, it, it is tough to create that team sometimes. What was the whole process like with regards to uh, the steel? Were there any challenges and how were you able to overcome them? Yeah, I think, you know, there's challenges with every deal. Um, the biggest one with this one in particular, I think, was staying on budget and on time, um, which goes back to kind of the process of having like an on-site uh, manager, having an app, having a design done, having electrical drawings, having the right trades in place, having that stuff all figured out before you're um, just going into a job. Like I think how I used to approach jobs was, I would say, oh, we have $100,000 to do renos. Okay, let's go do it. And it's kind of this, like, just you hope it ends up there. Like, I'm going to budget about five grand for windows, and five grand for roof, and everyone budgets, it, budgets five grand for everything, for each thing, right? Yeah. But um, if you don't actually have, like, a quote in hand, you can't really go off, go off of that. Um, so making sure that those that systems uh, those systems work out. And then I guess the other ch challenge I can think of for this particular job where the the neighbors uh, were elderly and just were not didn't like the idea of different people coming to the site and like the noise and we had the bobcats outside and doing some stuff there so making them happy um, you know that's a big factor and it, it might not be a big thing but just showing up you know with coffee the next day to the neighbors and being like hey sorry for the noise or hey take my phone number if you ever you know see some weird person on the property or something that you don't like going on the property, give me a call. Let me know what's going on and, and appeasing the neighbors. Uh, because I think at one point at time, I just was so focused on my own project that it didn't really matter what else was going on. Yeah. Um, where it actually goes a long way just to have the neighbors on your team to be like, Hey, um, you know, you don't want them throwing their garbage in your dumpster bin and like filling that up or, whatever yeah. making complaints with this the city because you're making too much noise or, or or someone is 
you know, lurking around and on the, the site and trying to break in to steal something, if there's some extra eyes or ears yeah. to help your project go, it, it can go a long way. Yeah, definitely. Now, looking back on, on the deal, is there anything that you would have done differently? I mean, it seems like it worked out pretty well in the end, but was there anything you would have changed? Um, yeah, I think just the pre-planning on that one. I think we have a, a better process now for the pre-planning and um, having good, it goes back to the timeline and the budget and a set of drawings. Um, you know, even some trades, you, you kind of walk them through a site and say, this is what we're looking to do. And then they go, yeah, it should be about this much. And then once you go into the project and then they do it and then they go, oh no, it's actually three grand more. Well, if we have like a set of drawings and um, material lists, um, and we get them to send us quotes of exactly what's going into the project. Typically, it just works out better where we don't have those unknowns or extras added onto the project at the end. Okay. So, Nick, tell me, when you're not investing, what are some of your hobbies? Um, well, I'm a married man with uh, two young daughters, and so they take up a lot of my my time so um yeah hanging out with with my family my girls um i love music i've played the drums for 20 years so um yeah since having kids i had to buy an electric drum kit so i can actually <laughs> yeah put the headphones <laughs> on and, and play when it's when it's uh nap time or whatever and uh and i'm a, a sports nut i like kind of all sports but uh my favorites are probably like playing our volleyball and golf. Um, but I'm also uh, an avid Oilers fan. So uh, I'm always watching all the, the Oilers news and all the games and stuff. So that takes up a lot of my time and, and my business. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of speaks for itself. And any small business owner understands that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I guess lastly, could you let the listeners know where they could find out more about you? I will be sure to link all your info in the description as well. Sure. Um, yeah, Instagram is probably our most up-to-date with like projects and things. So if you DM us, like add us on there, DM us. Um, we have a YouTube channel, Clean Cut Real Estate, um, where we just talk about different things uh, in the real estate world. And we also um, want to not only talk about investing, but also like on the contracting side, like um, you know, different products that we use. So like flooring, uh, LVP, like what are the pros? What are the cons? Uh, laminate flooring, uh, you know, di different parts of when you're doing actually the construction in, in jobs, um, to go through some, some things like that and also walk through the homes that, that we've uh, renovated or working on. So, um, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, uh, we have, a we have an office in, in Edmonton, kind of off white Avenue and 50th street. Uh, so you can come by, say hi. We'd love to meet more people and connect with more people in the real estate investing world. Thank you so much for reaching out and coming on to the show. I've enjoyed getting to know you and I'm sure the audience found value in this episode. Perfect. Thanks for having me. And uh, I hope to meet more of you guys out there. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Building Wealth Through Real Estate. If you're interested in learning how you can go about fixing and flipping a property, as well as finding a joint venture partner, then you definitely want to check out the episode where I interview Cody Kelly. This is your host, Alray Noble, signing off.